We are in Nehemiah chapter 11, and we're going through all of 11 into 12 up to verse 26. And so let me just get started here. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants, and in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin, of the sons of Judah, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephathiah, son of Mahalel, the sons of Perez and Messiah, the son of Baruch, son of Colhose, son of Haziah. Do you realize now why we are not reading the whole thing? <laughs> so that's why we're skipping. <laughs> you don't have to worry. I'm not reading anymore because I don't pronounce those names very well anyway. And so this is why we're just going to kind of run through them. But there are some really significant, important lessons to gather from looking at these two chapters of names. When you think about this, this is thousands of years ago, this list of people that we find here. And so to us, perhaps we may find this list of names pretty insignificant. Because you look at this and they're not really well-known people. You kind of look at this and say, who are these folks? But if we think about the people back in that time and we think about their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren, this is extremely significant to them. Now, some of us might find names quite interesting. I, for one, am one of those people. Whenever I go to a museum or a zoo or a school or a library, any place that has a list of benefactors, I love looking at that list of names. Anybody else, or am I the only? Yes, I'm not the only one, just us weirdos. I like those lists. I like looking to see if there are organizations there that I know of, or people that I know of, and if I recognize them, like, hey, I know that person. And especially if it's something, you know, my wife and I believe in or that we've supported, you know, there's some camaraderie there, there's a solidarity there, knowing that someone's with you in that and supporting that good cause. But what can we get out of this list from Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12? What can we glean from this? Well, we know that the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he wrote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now knowing this, what's the purpose behind Nehemiah providing us this list of names. We also know that the Apostle Paul wrote in Corinthians, the first Corinthians chapter 14 verse 40, that all things should be done decently and in order. And so here we have this list of names recorded decently and in order of the people who were present during Nehemiah's time who were part of the rebuilt, revived, repopulated Jerusalem. And this list is something that historians provide. Historians, they keep tabs on significant events as well as some of the details such as who was there and what they did. And so this is what we have in the book of Nehemiah. With this recorded piece of Jewish history, we have an acknowledgement that Nehemiah didn't do this alone. He did not rebuild Jerusalem alone. He recognized that he couldn't do it alone. And this is a recognition of the important contributions of others. Now, this is an important lesson in leadership, one that I need to work on myself. It's to recognize that those around us 
have contributed to the success of an organization, and in our case, this church. I cannot possibly do it by myself, nor can just the ministry staff or just the elders, that it was all of us together. I can do better in recognizing the contributions of those who have helped build our church. Many of you serve tirelessly and sacrificially to care for the people in our church community. Your contributions to our church is, is so valuable, and God sees this even though many of us don't. And just like those in these two chapters, we don't know who they were. We don't perhaps know who you are and everything that you do, but God does. Not everyone here knows every single way that you've contributed to our church, but God does. Every single person listed in Nehemiah 11 and 12 is important, just like you, in what you do here. And some of you serve in just such beautiful ways that few people even know what you do here. People who so beautifully live out Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where it is written, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. People who do what they do because that is who they are. You're not looking for others to recognize you, even though it feels good when they do. But that's not your motivation to care, to love, to serve other people. And for those who like to be seen by others for what they do, Jesus has a name for these individuals. It's this, hypocrites. Hypocrites, right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And you skip down to verse 16 of that same chapter. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. We serve God. We love people because we serve God and we love people. That's why we do it, right? And when we do it to receive recognition from others, well, then that's your reward. You got it. They recognize you, that's it. Now back to Nehemiah. You look at this list and the names on there, they're not well-known biblical figures. You'd have to do quite a bit of research to figure out who these people are. They were people who loved and served God without much recognition. Most of the people on that list we just don't know about. Now this is an important lesson to learn for whomever has narcissistic tendencies, right? This is also an important lesson to learn for those of us who feel insignificant at times. Because in the middle of being self-absorbed and self-important, and between that and the other polar opposite is being self-defeated, lies these people on this list. Who were these people? Now you take a look back to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, and, and here's where it starts to give us glimpses of who they are. Verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, 
and no houses had been rebuilt. So we know there was this large city with very few people in it. Kind of like Detroit, right? What good is that? You have a huge city with very few people in it. It's like having a humongous church facility with very few people in it, which there are many of them. What's the problem with that? It's not reaching its potential, right? It's not reaching its potential. A big city is built for a big population. And so the leaders address this in Nehemiah 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. So they were proactively repopulating the city, but are you noticing what this is really saying? That the people cast lots to bring them into Jerusalem, meaning this. No one wants to live in Jerusalem. You're going to have to force me by getting... I got it. And it's not like one of those lotteries like, yay, I win. I get to live there. It's like, oh, man. I got to move to blank. I don't want to make fun of any cities, even though a lot of them come into mind. (laughs) So in essence, this is a forced lottery. People do not look at verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Do you hear this? Like, This is how bad it is. Like, um, I'll go. Yay! Good job! Yay! Because if people really wanted to go, when people announce the lottery, they're like, oh, right? Because other people want it. But when people go, yeah, go, go! People really don't want to live here. It's not a place where people wanted to live. It's just like this neighborhood 10 years ago. No one wanted to live here. Did you know that across the street you can get a studio apartment for $700? 10 years ago? It's double that now. This is how it was. So get this picture in your head of how Jerusalem was back then, that these people during Nehemiah's time did not want to live there. And these are average Joes. These are just ordinary people. These weren't extraordinary people. And this is an important thing to keep in mind because look at the Bible and look at people in your life. The majority of the time, God uses ordinary people. Doesn't he? You just look at all the biblical figures. You look at all the people in your life that have been so influential. Why is this important? Because look at us. This is who we are. Ordinary. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if your mom and dad are saying like, oh, you're special and all this. I'm sorry. I'm just letting you know right now, you and I, we're ordinary people. We're just ordinary people. And this is great. This is really good. Because look at the type of people God uses the majority, the vast majority of the time in the Bible, in your life, who has he used? Faithful, consistent, committed, persistent people who live ordinary lives. This is who God uses. People just like you and me. Were any of Jesus' disciples extraordinary? Prior to the Holy Spirit coming and them changing the world. Yes, I understand. But during those three years when they were hanging out with Jesus and before when Jesus chose them, who were they? Fishermen? Tax collector? Zealot? Just ordinary people. Not one of them. Extraordinary. And in your life, has your life been marked by the extraordinary? Right? Full of drama, full of theatrics. 
and maybe some of you, but most of us? No, just an ordinary life. There are few people in this world, other than your parents, who are interested in your life. Right? Just quite honestly, who else is interested in your life? No one can make a movie about your life and make it a blockbuster. Like, no one would go. Right? Let's just be honest. Like, your life, you're born and you're all this stuff. Like, who would go watch your movie? It'd be boring. Right? It's just ordinary. How many movies have we seen that are made about people's lives in comparison to world history and how many people have existed in the world? Billions within, like, the, you know, world history, and then how many movies have been made about these people? Very small number of people. And there's nothing spectacular here in this list of names. It's just two chapters of ordinary people, and we don't know very much about them. We know that they lived in Jerusalem, which was significant because they contributed to the reestablishment, the repopulation of this community. Some didn't even do anything for Jerusalem. They just kind of went, that they were just there, that, you know, their names were casted or like they were like, I'll just go. I have nothing going on here anyway, so I'll go and yay, they go. And so they weren't doing anything there at all. And so for some of you, you might feel this way, that you haven't done much for the church, that you just kind of come on Sundays, and then you just kind of leave, and then you kind of come, and then you leave. But you're here, and it's a really good thing that you're here. We are so glad that you're here. Thank you for being here, and we love that you're here, just that you're here. Your very presence helps us to establish community. Your very attendance adds to the value of what we have going on here. So thank you for being here. What else do we know about these people? Skip down to verse 12. And their brothers who did the work of the house. So there were some folks that were just hanging out. They were just there. And then here are a group of folks that they worked. Right? So a group of present people. And then there were these 822 people who worked. There was a purpose as to why they were there. And they committed to taking ownership of that community. Now when we think of work, sometimes we think that it has to be something big. You know, that the way that we serve, the way that we work here, it has to be something of recognition or notoriety or fame. Like it's, but the thing is, is, that's not true. It doesn't have to be something big. The significance of their work isn't even mentioned. We don't even know what they did. It's just that they served God. They served one another. And no matter how big or small that work was, it was a work committed to God and to caring for one another. Now, more about work and significance, you jump down to verse 16 the chief of the Levites who were over the outside work of the house of God. Now, how do we define significance in serving God? Outside work of the house of God. Serving in our parking ministry so that we can maximize those spaces in our small parking lots. When you invite some folks to church, but there's a ton of garbage outside or we haven't addressed all the graffiti that gets marked out there. Have you guys noticed graffiti out there? There's a lot of it, actually. We cover it up all the time. Right, Mark? Right? We take care of the graffiti. We take care of the garbage. There's a ton of garbage outside, and people take care of that before you come in here on Sunday. And we addressed all these different things. The landscaping, if we've just neglected it for months, how would that appear to you guys? How would that appear to people you invite to our church? What type of impression would that make on people who visited our church? What type of impression would that make in our neighborhood? See those things that we take for granted here, such as what happens outside the doors. People are addressing these things. 
think about just simply having our doors work or having those rails up the stairs being stable because they were loose a few weeks ago and the windows that they're clean. Just all these small things. How do we define significance in serving God? I ask because people struggle in how to serve the church because they view some things as significant and other things as insignificant, that some roles are elevated because they're more public in nature or they're recognized, but you only get one chance to make a first impression. And if we have the idea that the outside work of the house of God is less significant, people won't even give us a chance of what happens inside. It's important. And this is what Paul wrote regarding how we ought to think. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. All the parts in service to God are significant. The service that is unseen is just as significant as the service that is seen. I'm sorry to kind of be so pessimistic on how important we are. A few generations from now, no one is going to know what we did. Nobody. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. Only God will know what you've done. And you think about the person who helped you have a relationship with Jesus. And you think about the people who have most significantly influenced you spiritually. Most of those people, we don't even know who they are. Right? Unless it's a close friend of your family. But none of us kind of know each other's most influential person or who led us to God. Most of you don't know my dad who led me to a relationship with Jesus. Many of you don't know the most influential people in my life spiritually. You just don't know them. And the same story is for you, that we don't know these people because the most significant people in our spiritual lives are unknown people, just like you and me, ordinary people who are on God's list, the one list that really matters for time everlasting. That one matters. And the people on this list, they were present, they worked, they served. And you look at verse 17, and Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was a leader of the praise who gave thanks. You skip over to verse 22. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah. Anybody who's running out of names for naming their children? Right here. And the sons of Asaph, the singers over the work of the house of God. One last one. Chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, and harps, and lyres. They were present. They served. Third thing, they worshipped. A healthy church is a worshipful church. Praiseful, thankful, prayerful to God. Are we worshipful? Not just singing songs. That's part of it. Some of you are here, you're present, 
Some of you are here and you work, you serve. How many of us worship? Praising God, giving thanks to God, not just on Sunday, but worshiping in Him with our lives throughout the week. And there's something deeply profound about musical worship. Music is able to touch us in a place in our soul that other places and people cannot touch. Have you noticed this about your life? Have you noticed this about kind of anything? Like if you're trying to get amped up for like a workout or trying to get amped up when you're competing for something, or what do you do? You put in some music, right? You put in something that gets you, it touches you somewhere else. You don't put on like books on tape. You don't do that. Or you don't put on somebody reading poetry to you. You don't do that. You put on music. You put on something that can get you going. Or even when you're feeling all emo and stuff. Remember back in the day? Or when you go through a breakup or something like that, you go, I could play those slow jams. You know, I got to. Like it touches in those places. Whatever you're feeling, it touches in those places. I remember when I was going through a year long depression, my first year in college, and I had no idea what was going on with me emotionally. All I knew that I was in a really dark place and I didn't feel like doing anything. I didn't feel like doing anything anymore, and I just didn't want anything. And I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't do much of anything, and one of the only times that I felt that the darkness lifted from me was when I was in worship. That was the only time. All the other hours of my day were just in darkness, and it was a terrible way to live. And so the only times that I felt this kind of relief from the darkness was I went to a Christian college, and three times a week we had chapel. And so... Monday, Wednesday, Friday, during this half hour of worship was the only times that I would feel relief. And then Sunday, when I went to church and I worshiped there. So those were the only times that I felt relief from the darkness, and that darkness lifted. Something about music is able to touch us in just a wonderful way. So I look at Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 23. For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. Think about this. A lot of the people living there did not want to be there. They had to cast lots to be there. And when they did decide, oh, yay, go, right? They didn't want to be there. So I can see how downcast, how these people felt as they were there because they were uprooted from their extended family and their communities. That if they were the people chosen, what about my mom and my dad and my sisters and brothers and my nephews, nieces, cousins? Like my whole family structure, I'm being uprooted from where I live and moved into Jerusalem. Can you imagine how downcast these people felt? What they used to do for work, tending to their family's livestock, to their family's farm or whatever they were doing, fishing from their waters, everything familiar to them was now far away. They were picked to go to Jerusalem. They needed that worshipful music every day. In my dark place, I was getting it four out of the seven days. It helped sustain me. And, and so here these people are. They needed that. They needed this. And so where do you find yourself this morning? Are you in need of a touch where only a song can reach? And Jane's really great at this. Essentially, all we do is we share what's going to be shared in the passage, and then she just kind of prayerfully enters into a, a place with God to ask God, what do you want me to sing? What do you want me to worship? And so often it lines up 
with their sermons. You know, sometimes people may think like, oh, they must have like really synchronized and all that kind of stuff. We've thought about doing that before, but it's been working in this kind of supernatural way that we've just kind of kept it the same. And so I wouldn't be surprised in kind of the second set of songs, sorry to put the pressure on you, Jane, that you would get <laughs> ministered to and that it would really touch you. Where do you find yourself this morning? In need of that touch where only that song can reach? Now let's go to chapter 12. Let's see the power of musical worship in action. Chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, and Bakbukiah and Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. So you get the picture here? This is a choir of thanksgiving where our worship team is in charge of the songs we sing, and you ladies and gentlemen out there stand opposite of them in the service, worshiping along with these worship leaders. I'm going to try something that we've never done in our church before. Could you all turn to Psalm 145? Do you mind all standing? I know this is not part of our liturgy. Don't freak out. Unless you're illiterate, then you just say watermelon with your mouth and just kind of go along, <laughs> and you'll be fine. Odd verses, I'll read those. Respond to me with the even verses. A song of praise of David, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Please be seated. How many of us have seen God? You've seen him. We don't know what he looks like, do we? But we know what he is like. 
Psalm 145 gives us that picture of what he is like. We can't picture his face, but those of us who have a relationship with him, we know he has touched our lives. And we have people like this, don't we? We have people like this in my life. I remember when I was about three, four years old, one of my Sunday school teachers, elderly white lady. I don't have a clue what she looks like. None. I don't even have a picture of her. My parents never took a picture of her. I have no clue what she looks like. I don't even know what her name is. Couldn't describe to you what she looked like other than she had just white streaking hair. Like it was just white hair. But I have so many fond memories of her when I was three and four years old because I was the only one in her Sunday school class. I was the only kid there. It was just me and her. That was it. It was just the two of us. And we met in a separate building. It was on the church grounds. I remember walking through like this thick grass and up the stairs and into this thing and with her. And I remember that she taught me, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. And I remember this because we sang this every Sunday. And I remember her telling me Bible stories with a felt board. Remember the felt board? I love felt boards. I love felt boards. I don't know what happened to those things. I don't know why we don't have them anymore. Felt boards are awesome. I remember this felt board, and she was teaching me all these stories, like, you know, Peter walking on water and all these kind of stories, and I can picture them in my head, like all these little felt stories she was teaching me through those things. And I remember we had a lot of fun. I remember looking forward to going there because she'd bring out these board games. I don't even know what the board games are called. But there was one where there's like a little dice thing and you press it and it pops and then it goes and you got to move the little thing. What was it called? I love that game. <laughs> but I remember her playing that with me every Sunday after Jesus loves me this I know felt bored and that. Like that was our Sunday and I miss her. I remember when we moved, because my parents moved from L.A. City proper to a suburb of L.A. when I was five years old to start school, and I remember thinking, like, how come we're not going to that church? Like, I really like that lady, and she played games with me and sings songs with me and all these really fond memories, and I missed her, and I can't wait to meet her one day and to thank her, and I'm going to have to ask God. I'm like, God, you know who I'm talking about? And like, yeah, yeah, she's over there, like... Row four, aisle one billion. I don't know. Like, go see her. And so, like, I'm finally going to see her, and I hope that she still has the white hair and she's not, like, her younger version or something because, like, I'm just going, ah! She's the type of person we read here in chapters 11 and 12. Ordinary people who were present, who served God, who worshipped God. And then verse 19, fourth thing, they kept watch. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 19. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers who kept watch at the gate were 172. We also see this in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 25. Mataniah and Bakbubiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. So they were attentive, prepared, vigilant, watchful of any danger that could enter the city and its important locations. How many of us are mindful of what enters the church? Aware of what could be dangerous to the church? 
ordinary people who were present, they served God, they worshiped God, and they kept watch over the people. These people aren't well known to us at all. They were faithful people. And I'm sure that white-haired Sunday school teacher of mine was watchful of me, and probably easy because I was the only child in that whole Sunday school. But I was very rambunctious, but probably very watchful of me and also very watchful of the things that she was teaching me because she was accountable to God for what I learned. But ordinary people. This is what Jesus had to say to the 72 when he sent them out in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Bottom line. Is your name written in heaven? That's really the bottom line. Most people on there are ordinary folks, just like you and me, but they were special to God. And we don't see what they've done. God sees everything they've done. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Your presence, your service, your worship, your watchfulness are not overlooked by God. He has this long list of names of ordinary people like you and me on it. Faithful people who work for God and love God, who worship God, who are watchful over his church, who are present. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For all these examples of folks that have walked before us in chapters 11 and 12. And I pray, God, that you would give us the strength and the perseverance to be present, to serve you, to worship you, and to keep watch over your people. I pray, Lord, a blessing upon the people of our church here. Would you equip us to do your good work? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.